All right, Kids for Truth, you guys can head out to the back. Our Summer Kids for Truth program runs during the message, and so all the the kiddos that are heading out, I think it goes up through uh, sixth grade, I believe, Uh, Kids for Truth, you can head on out. The rest of us are turning to Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1 this morning, this evening. Um, I want to let you know, every once in a while, there are moments in which this church shows their immense love for me. One of them is when you don't say anything when I do something wrong, like when I call a leper a lame man. When I get, when I get that, I don't know if some of you even caught that this morning. Yeah, Phil's laughing, you caught that. Uh, this morning, I was referring to a lame man, I said the word leper, I think it was four or five times. How many of you caught that? See the love, you didn't say anything. And, uh, and that's so kind of you, because if you've ever spoken for a living, you know there are many things that you say wrong, like good morning when it's 6.30 in the evening. Uh, and so thank you so much for that, and uh, thank you for your patience. We are turning to um, Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel uh, has been one of my favorite Old Testament books since I was a child, Uh, I must confess, I didn't know much about it other than the fact that I thought Daniel was a super cool dude. And uh, anybody that can survive a lion's den and has got stories of guys getting thrown into the fire and surviving, uh, I'm all in, right? And so uh, I've been excited to look into this book. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but uh, we give uh, each one of our pastors here the opportunity to preach and to teach. Um, uh, Pastor Sean right now is going through the Sermon on the Mount. Ben is slowly working through the book of Hebrews. Matt started uh, the book of Ephesians. And so as we rotate through, every time you preach, your theology gets sharper and and, and pastors are teachers. And so uh, rotating through the opportunity, each guy kind of has their own uh, their own series they're kind of working through. And that's by my request. I told them, I want you to do this. I don't want you to just pull from a random passage every time you have the opportunity. I want you to commit to something and work through a passage. And, uh, and, and it's good for all of us to do that way. I've chosen the book of Daniel, and, uh, and I'm really excited to be able to lead us through this as I have the opportunity uh, to preach uh, uh, on Sunday evenings this fall. My father-in-law, who was an old-time evangelist named Tom Farrell, preached a series on the book of Daniel. I'm going to steal the title of his series for my series because it's so catchy, you'll remember it, and I am not a wordsmith. I can't come up with titles for the life of me. And he was unbelievable with words. His title for his series in the book of Daniel was God's Man in Satan's Land. And uh, so I'm going to steal that. So if you're taking notes and you want to, you want to, you know, give a title to these messages, I think that would be appropriate. And so since I can't do titles, we're just going to do God's Man in Satan's Land, part one, part two, part three, part four, part five, part six, okay, all the way through the first six chapters of Daniel as we look through this. What is the book of Daniel about? The book of Daniel is not about uh, a group of people. The book of Daniel is not about any one person. The book of Daniel is about God's kingdom and how God's kingdom supersedes all other kingdoms and how God's sovereignty has no boundaries. God's control has no boundaries. 
And so as we look through the book of Daniel, we're going to see this theme continue to crop up. God is still in control. There are no boundaries to God's sovereignty. God's kingdom has no wall that you can climb over and get out of. There's nowhere that you can go. There's nothing that you can do that will take you outside of an area in which God has the total and exclusive right to your body, to your life, to your soul. It's not as though you can say, okay, I'm a Christian when I'm in, uh, in South Bend, but thankfully when I travel to Texas, you know, I'm a Hindu, and then when I get tired of Hinduism and I travel to California, nobody knows what they worship in California, but uh, let's go the other way. Let's go to South Carolina. Go to South Carolina, maybe I'm a Buddhist, you know, and that kind of thing. And so, so as I travel, it would seem weird for us to think that way. But yet in the first century, that was the mindset that when you were in Babylon, you better serve and worship the Babylonian king or you're going to be in trouble and that Babylonian god is going to strike you down. And when you go to a different country, you better assimilate and worship that country's god because if you don't, the god of that nation is going to be upset with you and angry and it's going to work against you. And so in order for me to have a good life, Whatever nation I am in, whatever nation I'm assembling to be a part of, that is the God that I'll worship. And, and when you recognize that in the ancient Near East, that mindset, there are several things that make sense. And I'll give you just two illustrations. Uh, I'll get back to my notes just in a minute. But I, I think that this, this will be helpful. Number one, it helps us understand Ruth's statement when she goes back to Jerusalem and she follows Naomi and she says, where you will lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. It's a statement that reflected, it's not as though Ruth was not a worshiper of Yahweh, but she's making the statement of saying, when I go into Jerusalem, I am dedicating my life to Jerusalem's God. Does that make sense? It also helps to understand, do you remember when the Ark of the Covenant was taken um, in, uh, I believe it was... um, and one of the, I'm going to get it wrong, I'm not even going to guess. The Ark of the Covenant gets taken and gets placed in a pagan temple, and Dagon, the god Dagon, what happens to him? Do you remember? He falls down, and everybody's shocked, and is like, oh my goodness, what's happening? It should be the other way around. The Ark of the Covenant is in our country, that god should bow to our god. And yet over and over again, Dagon is falling down to the Ark of the Covenant, and the last time his hands are broken off. You remember this whole, this whole account? Okay, this is the concept here. And you'll see it all through the Old Testament, is that there are no boundaries to God's kingdom because every other God is an imposter, little g God. Every other false deity is, is a fake that is not real, and everybody must bow to the one true God, Yahweh. Make sense? All right, so in order to understand the book of Daniel, we have to recognize that this is the major theme that Daniel's getting at here through his whole book. He's saying the, the, the book's not really about Daniel. That's why we can have a whole chapter dedicated to, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel didn't even show up because it's not, it's not about Daniel. It's about what God is doing and how God's people in a pagan land are still recognizing that even though they're in a pagan land, they are still subservient, they are still bowing to the sovereignty of God. And so the entire book of Daniel centers around God's complete control over all things, 
In the first six chapters of the book, which is what I'm going to lead you through to begin with, um, the, the entire six chapters are dedicated to understanding how God's people live in a pagan society without assimilating into that society. So we are still recognizing, even if we put ourselves in Daniel's shoes, we are in a pagan country, we are outside of of God's um, visible control, even all of the worship um, relics, not really, the, the worship items that are used in the temple have been carried away and placed in the pagan temple. And the question is, are, will they assimilate to worship the Babylonian gods or will they recognize that God's sovereignty, God's kingdom has no boundaries? And no matter where they are, they still need to worship the one true God. And then there's this giant shift in, in Daniel chapter 7 in which we see not only Does God's sovereignty have no boundaries in regards to geography, but it also has no boundaries in regards to time? Because all of a sudden, there's these incredible moments in the book of Daniel where you see pictures into this cosmic battle between angels and demons, and this is what's going to happen in the future, and this is what's going to go on, and you're like, you know, what, what is this talking about, you know, and and, and what Daniel wants you to see is that God's sovereignty is already in the future. So you don't have to worry. That not only is God's sovereignty worked out in the midst of every geographical place, no matter where you are, you're God's child. But even in the future, God already has it taken care of. And so once again, we need to remind ourselves that the, the goal of, of prophecy in Scripture is not to see this as a giant puzzle that we're going to try to put together and understand every nuance, but to understand the fact that God has it worked out, and we can trust him to accomplish his purposes, and within that we can actually see how that's happened in history. And so in verses 7 to 12, the word that we want to have in mind is the word comfort, that God knows the future, and that the future is secure in God's hands. So, Uh, Daniel's all about the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of God having no boundaries, having no wall that would stop his sovereignty. All right, in chapter one that we're going to look at tonight, I'm going to show you two truths and three principles, okay? I'm going to give you the two truths right at the beginning, then we're going to see them played out in the chapter, and then the end, I'm going to give you three principles that'll kind of summarize uh, summarize the chapter in regards to how we should think about that. The two truths are going to be about God's character. So two truths about God's character that we see in chapter 1. And then three principles for God's people that are living in a pagan land that we can draw from Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's life and how they interacted with the pagan society. We always want to be very careful to say, be like Daniel. We want to say, be like Jesus. And as Daniel reflects Jesus, so see him as an illustration and thus be like Daniel. But these characters are not being put up for us to say, here's what Daniel did, do just like this. But it's saying, here's how they submitted to God's character. And so take that same principle, recognize God's sovereignty, and in your specific situation, apply that same principle and watch it to be worked out. All right, two truths that we're going to see. Number one, God is working even when we don't see him working. 
God is working even when we don't see him working. Friends, we need this more than ever today. Even when we look around us and it seems as though God is not working, we must remember that God is actively presiding over everything. Because God is always at work, you can trust him entirely. You may say, well, I don't know where God is in this. Exactly. But that doesn't mean he's not working. And even if you never get the opportunity to see him working in your lifetime, doesn't mean he's not working. And so one of the truths that we pull out about God's character in this chapter is that God is working even when, or you could say especially when, we don't see him working. Alistair Begg has a quote which I love, and it says, Faith is not believing despite the evidence. Faith is obeying despite the consequences. And I think that is a wonderful quote that will kind of summarize uh, how we see these four young men responding to this truth about God's character. Secondly, as we've already mentioned, there are no boundaries to the kingdom of God. There's no part of this world where God is not calling you to submit to his rule over your life. There is no area in your life in which your life should not be expressly Christian. Living for God is not about coming to church on Sunday and then forgetting about God Monday through Saturday, praying, getting right Saturday night, or maybe on the way to church Sunday morning and just doing the church thing. God is calling his children to recognize the lordship of Christ over every single area of your life. There is no boundary to God's sovereignty. So, with that in mind, let's read Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to see, we're going to see if you can spot these two truths as they come out. And then we'll walk through and explain and help make sure you understand what's happening in the chapter. And then we'll look at three principles. So look down at your scriptures with me. Daniel chapter 1, begin reading in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? 
And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them all vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Before, therefore they stood before the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Lord, as we look into your inspired word, would you give wisdom? Would you help us see you? And would you help us to draw out principles that would help us look more like you? In your name we pray. Amen. What's happening in Daniel chapter 1? Well, Daniel tells us, he gives us the, the notation of when this happened. This is a historical event, not just some random story. When Jehoiakim was king in Israel, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came down into Israel, conquered Israel militarily, took all the best resources out of the country, and raised the land. He said, listen, I'm, everything that you have that's good, I'm going to take with me, including the best people, including your vessels of worship. By taking these vessels of worship, it was kind of a slap in the face to Yahweh of saying, see, my God is better than your God. And if your God was better than my God, then I wouldn't have conquered you. And so not only is your God, Yahweh, weaker than my God in Babylon, but, um, but, but now your God is going to be subservient to my God. In order to understand what's happening, it would be as if, um, as if Russia or China invaded the United States, conquered the United States, and then gathered the youth, the best, deported them back to China for brainwashing and, or Russia or whatever you know, country, massive uh, communist country that you'd like to list, and to say, um, we are now going to train them to, uh, to be our best and to represent us. And of course, we could take that illustration into detail and help you understand how graphic that would be, but we, it's important for us to understand the shocking nature of what's happened. I mean, you're talking about the homes of God's people, foreign countries, a, a, a wicked foreign country, a foreign country that would be seen as an arch enemy, entering in, conquering the country, making fun of God, killing the majority of the people and taking the best, who they would consider the best of the best, and taking them back to be trained in their own country. It's important to note as well that at this time period, the success and survival of a people group was a reflection about how strong their God was. If, if a, a um, group of people was really hard to conquer, then it showed that their God was really strong. If you, you see this played out, do you remember the story of uh, Rahab in Jericho? Where the children of Israel are marching through the promised land, 
And when the spies get to Jericho, what is Rahab's comment to the spies about why she believes Yahweh is the one true king? Do you remember her, her comment? She says, I have seen what your God has done to these armies. I have seen how your God is conquering every other nation. And by examining the evidence, I have noted that your God is the one true God. Okay? And so what's happening here, again, if you understand this concept, it, un- it opens up a lot of these stories in the Old Testament to you about why people are saying certain things like this. And so Yahweh here uh, is, is made fun of. I mean, if it, if it bothers you when someone takes the Lord's name in vain or when someone uses God's name in conjunction with a curse word and that should bother you, I want you to imagine this situation where God is literally being mocked by saying, hey, listen, your God couldn't even protect you and then taking all of the worship elements from the temple. But we need to notice the phrase in verse 2. Look down in verse 2 with me. What are the first four words of verse 2? And the Lord gave. This phrase happens three times in this chapter, reminding us of our first truth. God is in control even when, especially when, we can't see him in control. Even when it doesn't make sense, our God is still in control. I don't know if this... You ever had a thought and you're like, I don't know if that's original with me or if someone else planted that seed thought in my brain that happens with me a lot. And so I don't know if this is original with me or if someone else said this, but you can refer to this, I think of this, and you can refer to this in your life as the quiet sovereignty of God. The quiet sovereignty of God. The whisper of God in the background that you don't hear, and and God did this, and God did this. It's, and Daniel is recognizing that and showing us that. So now we have to answer the question, why in the world did God give Israel up in the hands, into the hands of Babylon, right? Why, why would God do this? Why would God allow himself to be mocked? Why not like David and Goliath when, when Goliath steps down and is mocking the God of Israel? Why did God not send someone like David to conquer the one who's mocking God? Well, because God is faithful. God is faithful. You may say, I don't understand that. How can God be faithful and, and this happen? Because, friends, God is not only faithful in accomplishing and fulfilling his promises of blessing, but he's also faithful in accomplishing his promises of chastening and of cursing. You see, in Leviticus chapter 26, God tells the children of Israel, if you do not follow me, I will deliver you into the hands of your enemies. You will be scattered among the nations. Isaiah actually prophesies in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 17 to 20, that Babylon would come in and Babylon would conquer Israel as the judging hand of God because God said, if you don't follow me, you'll be judged. And Isaiah stands up and says, listen, you're not following God. God's going to send Babylon to come and to judge you. So you better repent and turn back. And the nation of Israel didn't. And so... Even though often we view the faithfulness of God as God faithfully fulfilling what we would consider to be his good promises that he's given to us, we must also remember that God is faithful to every single warning in Scripture. Why do the unsaved spend eternity in hell? Because God is faithful. That's why. Why does everyone who turns to him find forgiveness? 
Because if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And so why was Israel taken captive? Because God is faithful. Hebrews chapter 12, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son does the father have that he does not discipline? Discipline is an act of love that reveals to those who are erring that if they do not righten their ways, worse things will come their way. Why do you discipline a child who acts out in anger and acts out in violence? Because one day that five or six-year-old will be 15 or 16 and 25 and 26, and at that point, if he acts out in anger and violence at someone, the stakes are so much higher. And so that discipline, as God is revealing to us in Hebrews chapter 4, is an act of love from a loving father saying, I love you enough to discipline you so that you will turn back to me. God is revealing himself faithful in bringing Babylon to judge Israel. If you want to see Daniel's confession, you can read Daniel chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. You'll see Daniel referencing the sin and confessing for the nation of Israel and recognizing that it was the, the, um, the disciplining judgment of God that brought them to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, captured all the assets that Israel held as valuable. He took the instruments of worship out, and then he took the people to be assimilated and trained in Babylonian ways. He took the best of the best, the best and brightest, to re-educate and brainwash them. We see that in verses 3 and 4. By doing this, Nebuchadnezzar was hoping to slowly destroy the nation of Israel by re-educating and brainwashing the future leaders of the country. If you bring out the best and brightest from Israel, you retrain them, make them loyal to Babylon, worship the Babylonian gods, in 20 to 30 years, those then become the leaders, and 20 to 30 years after that, you no longer have Israel. Do you see the plan here? He's saying in order to not only capture Israel, but destroy Israel, we have to retrain and re-educate the future leaders so that when those step into leadership, they're already well-trained to, to, to lay aside the truths of Yahweh and embrace the God of Babylon. Do we see any parallels today? It's the same activity that we see happening in our world today. There are people in this world who hate God, who are targeting the hearts and minds of the young people today, knowing that if they can teach them to hate the things of God, they guarantee future paganism. If we follow the pattern that Nebuchadnezzar has set up here to do this, he's brilliant. And it's the exact same pattern that we see happening today. Of, and let me just say this. Parents in the room, listen very carefully. Someone will disciple your children. Someone will. The question is, will you do it or will you offload that to someone else? Because the world is more than happy to do it. In fact, the world is welcoming it in and saying, you know what, parents? We got this. 
Don't stick your foot in the door. Don't worry about it. We don't even need your input anymore. The state can handle it, right? And as Christian parents, we say, thank you, but no thank you. There are aspects of our culture in which we need to be interacting with, in which we need to be recognizing so that we can train those who God has placed in our homes and God has placed in our spheres of influence. But we must recognize that Satan is out to win the hearts of young people. How do, what is the, the uh, modus operandi of, of the world that's a vague word we're learning in the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, Satan, let's just use that, okay? The, the, the forces of darkness, how do they accomplish the re-education and, and assimilation of our young people into their pagan world system? Okay, and I've identified four ways in which Nebuchadnezzar did it, and four ways, and I believe these four ways which are happening today. Number one is isolation, isolation. It's taking, if you look, what did, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He took these four boys, he isolated them from their homeland, and then he isolated them from everyone else, put them with the Chaldeans, put them with the Babylonians, and, and isolated them from their God. You can no longer worship at the temple, we're cheating, we are teaching you a, new, you a new language, we're teaching, we're giving you new names, all these different things, but we're isolating you from that which you need. Secondly, uh, and we see this happening all over, and we don't really have the time to get into it, but if you keep your antennas up and you watch the news at all, you'll see it happening all around us. And can I, can I make a side comment here? I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a spiritual statement. That there is something that is far more at stake than any political views that you could hold. And that is that, that the forces of darkness are going after your heart and they want your children and grandchildren. And they want them to worship at the altar of materialism, of sexuality. They're going after your heart, okay? So, so we, we have to remember that, that the forces that we're dealing with are supernatural spiritual forces here. Secondly, they're changing language, literally changing the words that they can use to even explain the world around them. They're redefining words and redefining terms. They may have even changed pronouns. I don't know, right? But you see that happening. Oh, that was a joke, by the way. I don't know if you guys are asleep or not, but... Um, but they're changing the language. You're not allowed to use the words that you did use to refer to this. We're changing your names. We're changing whoever, as, as Al Mohler would say, whoever controls language controls the culture. And so here they are changing their language, changing their names. Thirdly, they're indoctrinating them with pagan literature. They're introducing certain philosophies without the ability to critically think about them from another perspective. It's one thing to say, here's what the world is saying, here's what God is saying. It's something totally different to put someone in isolation and only give them one viewpoint. 
And so you see training in the Medes and the Persians. You see them training in the teachings of the Chaldeans. And, and fourthly, they're redefining history. Did you see that in here? That they are actually teaching them history from another perspective. And you see this happening all around us today. That if you can capture the hearts and minds of the future leaders of tomorrow, you can own the future. So we need to be aware that this is happening. And so King Nebuchadnezzar tried his best to assimilate these Israelite teenagers into the Babylonian system. He did this by indoctrinating them to the literature, worldview, and language of the Chaldeans. He even changed their names. You can see that there. Daniel means God is my judge. Yahweh is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, no one like God. Azariah, God is my helper. And changes them to reflect the gods of the Babylonian culture. Don't even talk about your God. Because if you do, it offends me. So we're going to change the language that you use. So that hopefully you'll just forget about this God. But what Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand is that true children of God recognize that God's sovereignty has no boundaries. That just because someone says something doesn't make it true. That just because Nebuchadnezzar may have spoken loudly doesn't mean that he should be listened to. I want you to notice something in the text. It's hard for us to see in English, but it's working in the background in Hebrew. Look at verses 7 and 8. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called. Gave and called there is the same word. And then in verse 8, but Daniel resolved. That's all three of the same words. And here's what, here's what Daniel's trying to do with the language here. He's trying to draw your attention to the concept that that, that word called and, and gave and resolved there is the word that means to set in place like you were to take a, a puzzle piece and to set it in place in the, in the piece of a puzzle. To set. And what, what's going on here is Daniel saying, listen, this guy tried to set them in this way. He tried to set them in this way, but Daniel said, no, thank you, but I'll set my heart this way. You've tried to do this and tried to do this, but thank you, I'll do this. You tried to set my name, and that's fine. You can call me whatever you want, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm Daniel, that, that I belong to Yahweh. Call me Belteshazzar, that's fine, but that's not who I am. I set my heart. You can set these pagan ways in place, but my heart was set long ago for the way of God. This brings us to our second truth that there are boundaries to the kingdom of God. We only have a few minutes left, but I'd like to draw our attention. I'd like to get to, uh, let's get through um, Daniel and the food, which is always a sticking point. And, uh, and then, we'll, then we'll wrap it up with the principles. Daniel rejected the food. There are no boundaries of the kingdom of God. Daniel said, uh, thanks but no thanks, God's still my king here. We have to ask some questions. Why did Daniel refuse the king's meat? Some people would say it was because of Jewish dietary laws. That may have been true, but it doesn't explain why he rejected all of the meat, because some of the meat certainly was uh, kosher. He rejected all of the king's meat. 
Some suggested that Daniel rejected the meat because the meat that they would be, have would be served uh, in part of their religious practices. In other words, offered to idols and then served to eat. Certainly that would have been the case, but that also would have been the case for the vegetables. Um, if you've ever been to a foreign country, you can see bowls of rice laid out and vegetables laid out to deities. It's a common practice. It wasn't just meat that was offered to idols. There are a lot of different suggestions out there. The best reason that I can come up with that I've, that I've heard and that, that I see in the text is that Daniel is rejecting the meat in order to keep himself from being assimilated totally in the culture. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm, I'm going to choose an area in which I want to set myself apart because I want to remind myself that this is not my home. It's not as though I, I, I can't eat the meat and be godly. It's as though doing this doesn't help me represent Yahweh better. And so I am going to set myself apart in this area to remind myself and to remind everyone around me that I'm set apart for God, that there's something different about me. That may be the case, that may not be the case. The best that I can tell, that's, that's the best reasoning that I can come up with. It's one of the reasonings that, that gives the best sense. You also see it in the life of Daniel, this theme coming up that he's setting himself apart in certain actions to remind people that I'm in Babylon, but I'm not of Babylon. One of the results of Daniel setting his heart towards righteousness and seeking to be distinct from the culture was that he approached his authority with meekness and respect. He didn't argue. He came and he made an appeal. What do you think about? Um, Would this be okay? Do you mind if we try it? I know you don't think it'll work, but can can I please just try it? And you see him coming with respect and him setting himself apart. And because of that, God blesses him. God expects his people to push back against the throes of secular paganism and God blesses his children when they do so. That would be a general, um, you could call it a thesis that we could walk away from chapter one with. That God expects his children to push back in a pagan society and he blesses them when they do so. Daniel is not giving you a diet to follow, okay? If you eat vegetables and water for the rest of your life, you are probably not going to be like Daniel where you end up fatter in flesh than everyone else around you, okay? This was a supernatural statement and blessing from God saying you are setting yourself apart in a pagan society. And later on, the other three would be thrown to the furnace of affliction, so it's not as though it kept them from suffering, but they did receive the blessing from God. The last verse, verse 21, reminds us that God's kingdom will continue as other kingdoms fall. Nebuchadnezzar came and went, verse 21, Daniel continued to the first year of King Cyrus. It's kind of like this statement of like, don't forget, every human king has an end. But God's kingdom doesn't end. And God's people, the remnant of God's people will always be there. Let me give you the three principles that I have for you, and, um, and then we'll call it a night.
God's quiet grace, first of all, overarchingly, God's quiet grace and quiet sovereignty in the midst of a pagan society preserves his people and secures his kingdom. So let me give you three principles for God's people while living in a pagan land, okay? Number one, resist full assimilation into the pagan culture. Pastor Joe, are you saying that we should become Amish? Probably not, okay? However, if that's what you want to do, more power to you. Uh, We'll put a hitching post at our church in the parking lot if we need to, okay? Do I need to become Amish? No. But friends, there are fronts of attack that are especially, um, in which we are especially vulnerable and, and I think it would be, without meddling too much in your business, I think it would be sufficient to say those, that which comes into our heart from what we see and what we hear. In which the pagan society would love to disciple your children, so be careful. They would love to disciple you, so be careful. Don't be afraid to be different. You are weird. Embrace it. Don't be different just for different sake and don't think that your difference makes you more godly because it doesn't. But recognize that there are some places in which you need to resist the influx of the pagan society into your heart and into your home. And parents, you are not your friends. You are not your child's friend. You are their parent. You are there to guide them to protect them. And it's your responsibility to do so. Secondly, appeal kindly and be reasonable with pagan authorities. Just because someone is unsaved does not mean that you have the right to treat them poorly. If you're in a secular work environment, which most of you are, and you have an unsaved boss, which most of you do, appeal kindly and reasonably to your authorities. Number three, leaders come and go, but God's people will always endure. Leaders come and go, but God's people will always endure. Friend, when you look at society today and you see the debauchery of what's happening around us, it should grieve you, but you should not be afraid of the church going away. God's people will endure. We need to be confident in the gospel. We need to be confident in the truth. Don't back down from the truth because it's unpopular. If you find yourself in the minority, you are, and that's okay. But God will always preserve a remnant. God will preserve his people. And uh, as we look at the pagan society around us, may we look with discernment. May we not be afraid to resist when the forces of darkness try to infiltrate our hearts and our minds. And may we live for God in a pagan society. Heavenly Father, thank you for your character. Thank you for your truth. May you guide us in it. May you make us wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. May we set ourselves against the forces of darkness and not be afraid to take a stand. May we aggressively teach our families and ourselves the doctrines of truth and scripture that we may know what we believe, why we believe them, 
and may, may you capture the hearts of our children. And dear God, as we see those children run out every night, every Sunday night and every Sunday morning, may our hearts cry out that they would be saved, that you'd bring them to you at a young age. And may we see a generation rise up in this pagan culture that is willing to stand for truth. May you make them confident in the scripture. May they be bullheaded about standing for what is right and uncompromising with the truth. But may they be gracious and kind. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.